You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, the Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. In these follow-up episodes, my guests and I offer a few recommendations for films that fit the month's theme and are available on other streaming services. David Blakesley, host of the Criterion Reflections podcast and regular contributor to Criterion Cast, joins me to continue our conversation about police stories. Stay with us. If you enjoy Criterion Channel Surfing, check out the complete podcast, hosted by Matthew Gasteyer and Travis Trudell, covering the filmographies of the world's most renowned directors one season at a time. The Complete is dedicated to taking chronological journeys through the most rewarding filmographies in cinema. Each season covers one director, with each episode focusing on one feature film from their catalog. The first season was dedicated to Stanley Kubrick, while the second season covered Elaine May. The current third season is focused on Krzysztof Kieślowski, the Polish director most famous for the Decalogue and the Three Colors trilogy. Find out more at thecompletepod.blueberry.net. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at criterioncast.com. I am here once again with David Blakesley, host of the Criterion Reflections podcast and frequent contributor to Criterion Cast. David, thank you so much for continuing this conversation about police stories. Hey, it's a pleasure to be back, and I finally got a chance to listen to our episode. Nice job. I was oh, thank very you. enjoyable to see how it all stitched together and rekindled my memories of our great conversation. And let's pick it right up where we left off. That sounds great. Well, for these follow-up conversations, we're going to talk about a few films on other streaming services other than the Criterion channel that fit in with the month's theme. David and I already talked about police stories that are currently streaming on the Criterion channel, so now we're going to talk about a few other films that fit the theme that are on other streaming services. So, David, before we dive into that, I just am curious. I know you're mainly a physical media guy and you're mainly a Criterion guy. What other streaming services do you currently use? Well, I guess I'm also a pretty basic guy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Netflix, Amazon Prime are kind of my two go-tos. But I also, and I have to give a little credit here to you and the head of the Ovid TV, I actually plunked down some money and made my annual subscription to Ovid TV Mm. after listening to your little episode there. And I was just really impressed by the dedication and commitment to world-class art house cinema from all different corners of the globe. And I said, you know what? I do need to support this. And the price was right. And I said, let's just go for it. Let's give it a one-year test run. And my commitment is to try to watch at least one of these Ovid films per week just to you know, continue branching out into wider avenues of input and perspective from you know contemporary filmmakers and just some of those unique niches that Ovid seems to have connected with. I'm a new subscriber. I basically signed up not just for the purpose of this episode, but that was one of the motivating factors. I enjoyed your conversation, and I'm looking forward to delving further in, but I've officially watched one film, and that's one of the ones I'm going to talk about in a little bit. 
Well, that's awesome. That's really great. Yeah, I think that Ovid is a really unique streaming service, and I do think that they have some really cool offerings there that are off the beaten path, right? They're Mm -hmm. so different than what you get on a lot of the normal streaming services. So that's great. That's very cool. Well, David, what's the first film that you're going to talk about today? I'm very excited to hear what you have to say. Sure. I'm going to go with one that I found on Prime Video or Amazon Prime, however you want to talk about it. And (laughs) it's Elio Petri's Property is No Longer a Theft. This is from 1973. And really what drew my interest to this particular film was the episode I did on investigation of a citizen above suspicion. This was one of my very favorite episodes of season two of my podcast. I recorded it with Matt Gasteyer, pretty well-known voice and personality, I'm sure to many of our listeners. I found that this era of late 60s, early 70s Italian cinema really pushes my buttons. Mm. In fact, Dillinger is Dead from 1969, Marco Ferreri, is really one of the very pivotal keys that prompted me to shift from blogging to podcasting for my Criterion Reflections project. I found myself completely stumped and kind of writer's blocked as far as putting my thoughts about that film into an essay. So I thought, let me just talk about it. That's when I connected years ago now, it seems, with Jordan Esso. He was my first guest, and he helped me unpack that very complex and very moving film. And it just really seems to me that there's something unique happening in Italian cinema at this time. Federico Fellini, of course, was kind of in his prime as well, and just did a little episode with Stephen Johnson and yourself talking yeah, about the yeah. Fellini box. Anyways, to get to my main subject here, yeah, Elio Petri, I still don't feel like I know a lot about him as a director other than he had a very pronounced political slant to his films, but seeing that this title was available on Amazon Prime said, okay, I got to check this out because A Citizen Above Suspicion was really very jarring film. That's about the corruption of police authority. It's the story of a cop who decides that he's so far above the law that he can go ahead and kill somebody, leave all kinds of obvious clues, and still get away with it. (laughs) And I'll let the listeners draw their own parallels to current events and so on. But it was a very great discussion that me and Matthew had. And so I just had to get into this one. And so, yeah, Property is No Longer a Theft really, I guess, is part of an informal trilogy that Petri put together. There was another film in between Investigation and this one. But this is about the corruption that comes not necessarily from police power, but from money and greed and kind of what you might consider an unrighteous abundance enjoyed by the privileged few at the expense of the many. So the story involves this young man, his name is Total, and I'm not sure if there was a meaning to that name, but he's a bank teller who is basically doing a very menial function. He's basically just taking money and seeing big stacks of money, currency coming in through the little teller window, and he's kind of disgusted by these characters. And at one point, very early on in the film, a bank robbery occurs, and it's a very dangerous situation, but he ends up surviving it. But it sort of triggers something in him where he's like, no longer going to be complicit with the system. He's going to kind of take his revenge because he's been struggling, scraping by, and he's going to become a thief. And he starts off with this kind of series of petty thefts, but decides as he kind of gets into this new way of life outside the law that he's going to 
Yeah, select a particular target, and the object of his acrimony is a man known as the Butcher. (laughs) The Butcher is a man kind of of middle age. He's very prosperous, and he is literally a butcher. He carves up meat and sells it to people, but he's become extremely wealthy along the way. I'm not exactly sure how such a common occupation leads to the kind of wealth that this man has accumulated, but perhaps there's been other things going on in between. The butcher has a beautiful mistress who's kind of a wild young thing herself, and Total kind of gets involved with her as he becomes kind of obsessed with stealing things from the butcher that are actually more symbolic in value. It's more of a campaign of harassment than it is an accumulation of Mm -hmm. ill-gotten wealth. But the story just really unfolds in this very surrealistic, arch-political way. Petrie was an avowed Marxist, very enamored of communistic ideals from that kind of Italian leftist perspective, not necessarily a Stalinist or anybody aligned with the Soviet Union in a formal way, but really has this sense that, as the title itself is kind of a play on the old anarchist and communist slogan, property is theft, because capitalism is so corrupted and compromised the society that he's a part of that basically that struggle is over and we're just going to kind of give in and kind Mm. of get co-opted by the powers that be. Now, you have not had a chance to see it yourself. It seemed like it was showing locally recently. Yeah, yeah. One of our art house theaters, they have been running a series of political heist films. Mm -hmm. And this is one that they showed. They just recently showed Dog Day Afternoon as well. Yeah, yeah. And they showed F. Gary Gray's Set It Off. So they've had a couple of different types of heist films. And this is one that really intrigued me. So I'm glad to know it's streaming on Prime because this is one that I'm really curious about. And it sounds great. Yeah, there's a very pronounced Brechtian element. In fact, each of the main characters of the film, I think there's like five altogether. There's Total, there's his father, there's the butcher and his mistress, his girlfriend. And then there's another character, which I guess brings the police element. He's known as the brigadier. And he's Mm. the guy who's kind of called in to try to solve the problem of this theft total he takes things like the butcher's knife and his hat and the pearls that belong to his mistress but he very deliberately avoids stealing money until kind of a pivotal moment in the film where the cash does wind up in his hand so there's kind of a philosophical principles being followed here this is not just a crime spree or a caper for the sake of the the thrills and giggles of it there's kind of different ideals being acted out here yeah and then these characters directly addressing the Camera. They're in this all black background, and it's definitely fourth wall is you know shattered into pieces as they kind of each explicate some of their motivations and perspectives, and really you know imply the viewer in on this dirty business, this corruption that is kind of fueling the whole story and situation unfolding before us. There's a lot of philosophical complexity and depth here. It's a film that I think rewards multiple viewings, and it's also got a fantastic Ennio Morricone soundtrack. So, yeah, mm. yeah, if you're watching at home, you know, put the headphones on and let the atmosphere yeah, kind of yeah. get into your system that way. Well, that sounds really great. I'm very eager to catch this. That sounds right up my alley. I always love those Brechtian films from the 60s and 70s. Yeah, this sounds great. 
my first film is a documentary called Crime Plus Punishment by Stephen Mang from 2018, and it is currently streaming on Hulu. I first encountered this during my award season viewing at the end of 2018 as I was trying to catch up on Oscar shortlisted documentaries. And it is a documentary that is about the problems of policing in New York, and it follows the whistleblowers in the New York Police Department who are filing a class action suit after being targeted by their superiors for failing to meet the illegal rest quotas. It also at the same time follows a private investigator who works with young men of color who have been wrongly arrested multiple times and they get caught in the system time and time again. The police officers, they record their superiors, they go on the record with reporters, they meet with community leaders, they do what they can to expose the continued enforcement of this illegal quota system. As they come forward, they earn the nickname the NYPD 12. Mang, he wisely pairs the story of the police officers with the story of a victim of this aggressive policing. He's a teenager who's accused of attempted murder. He's arrested. He's sent to Rikers Island where he spent a year because the prosecutors keep delaying the trial. They keep offering him plea deals and he keeps maintaining his innocence. So he's stuck inside limbo and the bail is set too high and the investigator does what he can to try to prove his client's innocence. The film takes a really non-intrusive approach. It's kind of fly on the wall, a little bit of a verite approach. But there are these really lovely moments throughout where we're made aware of the camera, where we're made aware of the filmmaker behind the camera. The investigator buys him a pastry and then takes the camera so that he can film Stephen eating the pastry. Or there's another moment where he's filming one of the police officers who has been stuck on a street corner in the cold all day. And he's been told he can't move from that street corner. And he goes to interview him, but is told to duck behind a car so that he can avoid being spotted by the police officer's superiors. So you begin to get a sense of the danger and the consequences that the police officers face and the consequences they face for going on the record. There are some really standout moments throughout. We get to see the members of the NYPD 12 as they watch their appearance on national news. They go live with their complaints, and we see them watching themselves interviewed, knowing that their life is going to forever change now, mm -hmm. that they are going to now be targets. These are officers who are not hiding behind blurred faces. They're not hiding in the shadows. They're not coming forward as whistleblowers and having their faces obscured, but they're going visibly on the record and saying that what is happening in the police department is wrong. And it's heartbreaking to see the ways in which the department slanders them, the ways in which their superior officers constantly pass them over for promotions, even when they are the most qualified members of the force for the jobs. We see the ways in which they're targeted, the ways in which the stress of this situation takes its toll on their bodies, the ways it affects the relationships with family, the way it affects their children. It's a heartbreaking film. It's powerful film. It's really, really infuriating at times. There are really powerful and hopeful moments throughout as well. 
the story of this teenager is incredibly hopeful, but when you realize that this young man has lost a year of his life because of the aggressive policing policy where they are told to arrest people mm. to meet a quota and to help raise revenue for the city, mm. it's heartbreaking. It's an important film. One of the police officers says that New York is where this all starts. Hmm. And then it goes out into the rest of the country. And so it's an important thing to look at because this does spread everywhere. It's a great film. And I do think that, you know, we've talked a lot about good cops chasing down the bad guys. But I thought it would be really good to talk about a police story where we look at the corruption within the police forces as well. This was a really good one to revisit. Yeah, and this has a 2018 publication date, so this is all pretty yeah. fresh stuff, and in some ways I imagine some of these stories have not been fully resolved. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. It's a very current type of thing, not, you know, looking back at the old days or how things used to be. That's quite remarkable, thinking about all the highly publicized incidents of cops gone rogue or certainly at least questionable judgment in the exercise of justice. It's a bit discouraging, honestly, to see that there's still such a widespread reluctance to own up to the fact that they are playing games with people's lives in a way. Yeah. Especially when it's done for such crass motives as quotas and revenues, that we're going to basically put people's freedoms, liberties, and human rights in the balance just to meet the bottom line, just to get the cash flowing in the projected budgetary direction. Yeah. That's kind of a sickening thought. Mm. Yeah, yeah. This is an important film, and I think that the bravery of these police officers for standing up and for trying to engage the community as well, I think, is really powerful. Yeah, yeah, because that really is the remedy for injustice, is people courageous enough to make the stand to say, you know what, we're going to do this the right way, we're going yeah. to take that risk, and God bless them for that, because not everybody has it within them, and not everybody necessarily has the opportunity to say, I'm going to stand up and make a difference, so... Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. the story isn't concluded yet, but thank you for bringing that to my attention. That's something I might yeah. need to check out myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. All right, David, what is film number two for you? I'm excited to hear about this one as well. Yeah. This is my Ovid selection. And, you know, basically, once I made that decision to subscribe and dig into this new service, I said, well, let me find a crime related film yeah. on the channel there. And I found one called Marseille. And that's the, I guess, the English marketing title for it. Mm -hmm. Its French title is De Guerre Lasse, or Weary of War, I guess, would be the more literal translation, which I think is actually a better title. Marseille, of course, the French city on the Mediterranean coast, there is the location where all this takes place. And I can understand the strategy of maybe putting the movie across under that. But this idea of weary of war, the fatigue of the mm. criminal life and the gang warfare and the rivalries and all of that really does speak more specifically to what this film is about. The director is a man by the name of Olivier Planchot. He's uh, apparently from this community, or at least a community very similar to what's depicted here. One of the kind of ironic and interesting things is that the primary context of this film is the Muslim community that mm. you know lives in Marseille, and specifically the criminal underworld that has kind of taken root in that city. Of course, you know, there's the Marseille trilogy, Marcel Pagnol, and yeah. kind of the more classic French cinema, but Europe has been transformed in many ways by immigration, by all kinds of social changes. Some 
would also point out the colonial roots and the obligations that the old colonial powers have to the peoples and cultures that they exploited for many, many years. And now there's this balancing that's going on. But the story of Marseille, or Weary of War, is about a young man named Alex. He's the son of a man who was a pretty prominent figure in the criminal world of that city. As is often the case in these situations, there's very serious rivalries, and they have a blood feud going on with the Corsican Mafia. And Alex, hot-headed young man, several years prior to the action of this film, had taken things too far, had crossed some lines as far as the ethics of the gangster milieu, and had to go into exile, if you will. He joined the Foreign Legion, he was stationed in Afghanistan, So there's a bit of uh, political context here as well, as he kind of disappeared himself, but he's had enough of that. After four years of military service, he deserts his duties, goes rogue, and it's not really explained how, but he finds his way back to Marseille, very undercover, very much recognizing that if he's discovered by the wrong people, his life is in jeopardy. And soon enough, all that starts to take place. But it's basically the story of a young man who wants to get reconnected. There's some family dynamics going on. There's definitely some revenge and action motive. I couldn't help but think of the podcast episode I just published the other day on Get Carter, Mm. a pretty classic British gangster film from 1971 starring Michael Caine. And it's a revenge story as well. So there is actually, unintentionally, but there's definitely some very strong parallels between the two stories. I'm not going to say that Marseille is a great film. There mm-hmm. are some bits that are kind of generic, tough guy, badass, action-y type of things, you know, where he's got the guns pulled on him and it looks like his number's about to be up, but then a little reversal takes place and he's taking out the bad guys and it's kind of that hyper-sped-up yeah. motion, boom-boom, rock'em, sock'em type of stuff, which, you know, it's got its own sort of visceral entertainment value to it. But to me, what really stood out was the fact that this really seemed like a story that is worth telling just because you're really encountering the cultural dynamics that inform this situation. And it didn't feel exploitive or condescending at all. This is just a portrait of a modern European city that's been transformed culturally and economically and politically by these very large-scale forces. And so, yeah, yeah, that was to me the appeal of this film. It's not one that I've seen a lot of in-depth analysis. This is not a game-changer as far as a cinema elements. It's well made. The characters are compelling, interesting. I found it to be a very worthwhile 94 minutes, so this is not a huge commitment, but it's a glimpse into a world that is in many ways far from my own, but one that I would find worth the time, and it's good for me to get familiar with this scene, and perhaps Olivier Planchot will go on to make other films. I think this is still pretty early in his career as a director, at least. I think he's got one other feature behind him that was made before this, and that was six years ago, so who knows where he's exactly going, but To me, it was a nice little entree into the Ovid lineup, and I'm looking forward to seeing what else they're going to put in front of me. I think it shows the breadth of the type of work that they're doing, right? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, you have a good experience with things like the Chantal Ackerman and Chris Marker's work, Mm -hmm. right? You know kind of what to expect there. And it's nice to get to see some of this modern European action-y art house stuff, right? That's very different. And I like what you're saying about this portrait of a community that has been transformed by the legacy of colonialism and the impact of immigration. 
It just sounds like a really fascinating attempt to wrestle with that in a maybe more entertaining way. Mm -hmm. And I think even some of the more subtle elements of the French Muslim community, I mean, there are those who are observant of the Muslim credo and Ramadan and things of that sort. And there are those who become more secularized, more assimilated. So there's the tensions within that community. It's just really, to me, very beneficial just to understand what's happening in these subcultures and recognize that, you know, some of the pressures, some of the tensions that we see in our own society have their kind of (laughs) mirrors or parallels in societies that we might think of as in some ways maybe fundamentally different than our own and that's not to homogenize those differences but it's also to recognize that there are just some very common human attributes and questions of life that we're all wrestling with in our own way yeah yeah that's great my second film is destroyer directed by karen kusama I didn't mean to choose two films from 2018, but I ended up doing it. And I also didn't mean to choose two films that are currently streaming on Hulu, but I did as well. This film is also on Hulu, and it also has a nice little connection to the Criterion channel because we currently have a Karen Kusama Adventures in Movie going right now. Karen Kusama got her start working with John Sayles before she made her first feature, Girl Fight. Like a lot of independent filmmakers, she was brought on to direct a big-budget film for her second feature. That was the sci-fi film Eon Flux. But she ended up having the film taken away from her in the editing room and vowed to always have final cut afterwards. She moved on to the Diablo Cody-penned horror comedy Jennifer's Body, followed by some other smaller-budget horror films before moving on to TV. That seems to be a career path that a lot of female filmmakers end up going through when their films aren't necessarily smash successes. They tend to follow that route. Destroyer is her first big-budget film back, and this is an absolutely riveting, sun-drenched neo-noir starring Nicole Kidman, I think, in one of her finest performances. Nicole Kidman plays a homicide detective who stumbles onto a crime scene dead drunk and begins an investigation into a murder that has connections to an undercover assignment that she was on 16 years ago. It was an undercover assignment that went horribly wrong. The film explores the consequences of trauma. Kidman's character is an alcoholic who has pushed everyone away due to the lingering trauma that she suffered in part based on the undercover assignment, but also based on the consequences of the, cho- the consequences of the choices she made while she was undercover. I love the way that Kusama explores time and the ways that trauma rewires the brain to experience time differently so that the past is constantly intruding on the present. It's an effective narrative device that lets us look at the past and the present simultaneously so we get that backstory. But it's also really, really honest in the ways that these experiences that have so shaped our present continue to intrude upon us. You know, again, Nicole Kidman's performance here is just outstanding. This isn't one of those performances that is completely generated because of the makeup. This isn't, you know, something that is all in the prosthetics or because of an affect or a mannerism. You get the sense that this is coming from the inside out. This is a woman who has been beaten and weathered by time. There is a burden that just is crippling her. She is carrying the burden of grief and loss. She is being beaten down by the unrelenting and unforgiving Los Angeles sun. 
this is part procedural, it's part mystery, it's all noir, all in, again, that unforgiving, blazing, bright sunlight, which makes everything a little harsher, a little more unforgiving. The violence is brutal, so there is that for anyone who might be sensitive to that. It's a revenge story. It's surprisingly powerful and moving, and there are these really lovely cinematic flourishes and touches, especially towards the end, that I found surprisingly moving. This is one that I had meant to catch in theaters when it was out, and I had meant to catch it after the year rolled around, but I just missed it. And so this provided a really great excuse to see it, and this is one that I absolutely loved. And it makes me excited to catch some of Kusama's films that I haven't had a chance to see yet, because I think that she's a filmmaker that even when her films may not work completely, I think she's doing interesting things. And I think she's an incredibly talented filmmaker. I'm really excited to see more of what she does. It's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, Nicole Kidman is perhaps not the box office gold that she certainly was, you know, once upon a time. Yeah. But it seems like a pretty courageous role for her to take. I don't know what kind of offers she's getting these days. I think she's still a pretty remarkable screen presence and actor. But this doesn't seem to be a film that made, you know, big bucks as far as its box office or lasting reputation. But it sounds like, you know, based on what you're saying, it probably deserves more attention than it got. Would there be any factors as to why you think this film might have underperformed or didn't necessarily click with the mass audiences? You know, I think that part of it is it was meant to be an Oscar nominee. People Mm -hmm. were hoping that this would be really a Nicole Kidman Oscar contender. But Annapurna, who was the film distributor, was going through some studio issues. So they were losing money. They did not have some good release plans for earlier films. And they lost a lot of money on their release plans for other films. So they put all of their money behind Vice which was the Dick Cheney biopic. Yeah, so that was the one that they really put their effort and energy into. And Mm. I think a lot of other films ended up getting buried Mm. on their slate. So I think that it's just one of those ones that ended up getting lost in the shuffle. There are a lot of studios that do that. They choose to put their resources behind one film. Annapurna has a deal with Hulu for streaming, so you can find most of their films for free on Hulu, which is helpful if you have that service, but you can also just rent it on whatever other streaming rental platform you have. Nicole Kidman actually approached Karen Kusama and said, I really want to work with you. So I do know that there's a real willingness for Kidman to take risks. She wants to try new things and wants to do things that are outside of her comfort zone. I find that really exciting. When you have these actors who are wanting to do something different, when you have Robert Pattinson approach the Safdie brothers to do good time, saying, hey, I will do whatever it takes. I'll do catering for your next film. I just want to be around you guys and learn from you. There is a real lack of ego when you have these Mm -hmm. actors who are just tired of doing the stuff that they've always done and they want to try something different. From what I've heard in interviews with Karen Kusama about this film, She was just really impressed by how much Nicole Kidman was really eager to learn and discover. All of the actors in this film play their characters at two different points in time. So Nicole Kidman plays herself as a very young woman and as this woman at the end of her rope. And 
Whereas in so many films today, you have the digital de-aging. They did nothing to digitally de-age. It's all in performance. It's Mm. all in what Nicole Kidman brings to the performance and the physicality of the performance. And you just get the sense of Kidman as a master craftswoman, really bringing her all. So it's pretty incredible. Well, again, you've kindled my interest, so I'll find a way to get there. Yeah, Yeah, I think I may have a vestigial Hulu app in my feed there. (laughs) Maybe I have to reactivate for a little test run and give it a look. That's right. Cool. Well, if you're looking for more police stories, that's four titles to catch this month on other streaming services. Property is No Longer a Theft by Elio Petri, streaming on Amazon Prime. Crime Plus Punishment by Stephen Meng, streaming on Hulu. Marseille by Olivia Planchot, streaming on Ovid, and Destroyer by Karen Kusama, streaming on Hulu. David, once again, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. I always love talking with you about films. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to get together. I'm sure you'll be over my way one of these days fairly soon. But yeah, this is fun. This is nice to kind of get outside the Criterion bubble a little bit, see what other great stuff is out there. Well, where can people find you online? Yeah, CriterionCast.com is my main hangout. I also have a Facebook group called Criterion Reflections, The Group. And there's another one called just Criterion Reflections, but The Group is where I'm a little bit more active there. So yeah, find me on Facebook, join my group, and we can talk about the movies I talk about my podcast and other places. So yeah, that's where you can find me. Great, thanks. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, CinemaCocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at CriterionChannelSurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of Criterion Cast at patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener-supported, so please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash joshhornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show, and for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. Thanks to all of our current Patreon supporters, it really does mean so much. On the next episode of Criterion Channel Surfing, my guest and I will discuss February's new and expiring titles. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.